This is the Midas Touch Wedding Edition. Jordy is getting married. Jordy is not on the podcast, Woo! but a big celebration for your favorite Midas brother. Who's Cue the not music, here, Jordy. Dun, 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 dun. Well, Jordy's not the bride, but we're going to still play the music. Dun, 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 dun. Congratulations. Jordy, we are so proud of you. We love you so much. What a big weekend coming up. I love that the Midas Mighty gets to share in this also. I know they're really upset right now that Jordy's not here. Like last time me and you, Ben, did an episode together, the number one comments were, where's Jordy? But that's why we're going to bring the energy today. We're bringing we energy. We are excited about democracy. And guess what? Do you feel that, Ben? You feel that? You hear that? You hear I that? hear it. I feel the it. The ground this is shaking. The earth is moving beneath our feet right now the tide is turning the tsunami is building the blue tsunami of course what a momentum shift for the democrats a huge momentum shift for the democrats and it's because the democrats stand for pro democracy the democrats stand for protecting people's rights so it was no surprise the result the results earlier this week in kansas for example, when overwhelmingly people in Kansas protected their constitutional right, their state constitutional right to reproductive rights, the right to have an abortion in that state, there was a vote to overturn that constitutional right and the vote no, not to overturn the constitutional right, won by like double digits in an area that is you know, has a large number of Republican voters, far more Republican voters in Kansas than Democrats. Brett? Well, first, I just want to announce before we dig into this all, I need to tell everybody who our guest is. Oh, tell them we who got the guest is. Stephanie Winston Walcott, former advisor to Melania Trump is on the show. She was one of the original whistleblowers in the Trump administration, really from day one, basically, about the presidential inaugural committee. Excited. I mean, all everyone knows Stephanie. Stephanie is amazing. Excited to get her insight on all things. I Trump always want to check things. in with Stephanie, Brett, though, because we can't lose track of all these other Trump fraud grifts that are taking place. Because there's so and many. There's so many that's taking place. And Tom Barrick, who worked with Donald Trump and led the presidential inaugural committee, uh, Tom Barrick is on trial. I think it's this September, maybe October, but it's coming up in the next few weeks. He's on trial for essentially selling the United States of America to the United Arab Emirates. That's what he's tried with. He's also charged with a number of obstruction counts as well. Um, but he was only charged with that, but he was basically selling America's interests. It appeared at least he was selling America's interests to the highest bidder out there in general. America first. That was the very first thing that Trump <laughs> did. I don't know if you remember this, Brett, but early on wow. in the Trump administration, literally before the administration was even an administration, they had those cameras, those C-SPAN cameras in yeah, uh, the Trump Tower. Tower. Yeah, I remember and you that. would literally see like the foreign emissaries like walk in one by one with like bags that I'm not saying that they're bags filled with cash, but they were basically <laughs> the equivalent of that. And they would just sell off the country. That's where they started plotting the, you know, the, the lots of the major, major, major points of how could we use the presidency to further enrich ourselves? Yeah. And what we saw, you know, back then with Stephanie was. Once the shit started to hit the fan, 
what they tried to do was they tried to shift the blame onto Stephanie. They tried to use Stephanie as the fall person for all the crimes that they were committing with the inaugural committee. And we're now seeing that, you know, just like on repeat, right? History rhymes with the Trumps always. They do the same things over and over. And now we're seeing that that is their strategy for January 6th as well as Trump prepares for criminal charges from the Department of Justice. So very interested to get more details. Here's why I'm also interested, Brad, too. So one of the people who threw Stephanie Winston Walkoff under the bus was Stephanie Grisham, Grisham. Melania Trump's chief of staff, who Melania Trump just threw under the bus in the past few weeks. So we'll get Stephanie Winston Walkoff. Don't they learn? Like you're always going to get thrown under the bus at the end of the day once you are no longer useful to them. And people wait far too long to learn that, like Stephanie Grisham. But excited to have Stephanie Winston Walkoff. Let's talk more about these seismic, seismic elections and what they mean for the elections coming up. And we've been saying for a while that we believe the pundits have this all wrong about 2022, that they're not taking into account a lot of these factors going into the midterms. We said even prior to the Supreme Court decision that there's going to be a lot of change between then and the election, that the Supreme Court decision was going to shift it. There was going to be a whole new momentum as we got closer to the election. Remember, momentum in politics shifts on a dime. Think about the momentum in the beginning of the Biden administration in the first few months. You had the best momentum on the planet, really until the Afghanistan withdrawal, which I still stand by as being a very important and and accomplishment of the Biden administration to to get us out of Afghanistan. But that's really when the media coverage of the momentum started shifting away from Biden and the Democrats. And then there was the Virginia elections, which really, uh, you know, was really difficult for the Democrats and put the momentum in the Republicans favor. But now last night, it's a whole different ballgame. And with 97 or so days to go until the elections, the shift is absolutely huge. And the vote tallies that we have right now from this Kansas vote are 58.8 percent people voting no to around 41 percent of people voting yes. A huge win for abortion rights advocates. And guess what? You know, people are seeing the Republican Party as extreme. They overreached. They are now paying the price for this. And in deep red Kansas to see this sort of vote. And by the way, not just in places that Biden won, not just in the big cities, but places where Trump won by extraordinary margins. I mean, the no vote was crazy, even in areas like Franklin County, for example, where, uh, you know, Trump won by nearly 40 points in the 2020 election. The no was leading there by more than 13 points, which shows you that even Republicans, even MAGA people, when they see abortion on the ballot, you know, they might not tell a pollster, you know, what they're for or what they're against, because they might see, you know, someone in the room with them who might judge them and they might think the pollsters judging them. But when they get in that ballot box and actually vote, they're not voting to take away their own rights. They understand that this is an important healthcare decision that is theirs and theirs alone to make. Well, I think what's really important too, when you look at Kansas is the amount of unaffiliated voters uh, as well, you know, independent voters who vote in that Kansas election. And it was basically a statewide election. It was an interesting thing that in their primaries for the midterms, this referendum was put on the ballot for them to basically vote whether or not they would overturn a constitutional right, a state constitutional right. So for people who are confused, there's the federal constitutional right that existed with Roe v. Wade, but that right has been overturned. But within the various states, states have recognized their own constitutional rights. And in Kansas, they wanted to introduce this 
legislation to try to overturn that state constitutional right to ban abortion in Kansas. And people voted no there. But it was really a coalition, Brett, of unaffiliated and Democrats. And if you look at just the Kansas numbers, you see the unaffiliated people identifying as unaffiliated is is rising almost to the same level as Republicans who are registered in the state. There are more Republicans than Democrats in the state of Kansas. And I think that is a trend we are seeing across the country, too. And I think that is a trend that I see in lots of people who I and and you talk to because the nation doesn't like extremism, right? The nation does like a level of moderation, a level of normalcy. And when we use the term like conservative, this is why I always say I think I'm far more conservative than a lot of, you know, than than the MAGA people. Like I believe in conserving our democracy. I believe in conserving our institutions, our judiciary. Right. I believe in I believe in a stable, stable system. It's because it's not a conservative movement anymore. It's a purely neo-fascist movement. So when neo-fascist, when you refer to them as conservative, you're giving them this political cover and and you're not doing just honestly, you're not being honest as a journalist. You could pretend like, oh, well, they're going to say I'm liberal biased if I call them neo-fascist. But guess what? You're just not being honest with your audience. And it's important now more than ever to be honest with your audience and call it what it is. Exactly. You call them conservative and this liberal. It just those labels don't make sense anymore. And so I do think you have Democrats riled up. You have unaffiliated riled up. And then what we also see, though, Brett, as we look, though, in certain you know local races too, sometimes, you know, with the extremists, I mean, the ultra MAGA extremists, they want extremism. Right. So if you look in a place like Arizona, Rusty Bowers, who was the Speaker of the House in Arizona, a longtime Republican, someone who's actually conservative, he loses his seat in an area where the voter turnout was like 30,000 voters or so. Like it's not a huge voter turnout. Yeah. And it actually doesn't surprise me that someone like Rusty Bowers would lose that election. I mean, the extremism in that Republican primary, they want to elect extremist candidates. Yeah. And you and I had this debate yesterday uh-huh. when, you know, when it comes to the Republican primary, which is like, do you want them to nominate the extremist candidate who the Democrats have a higher likelihood of defeating? Um, or do you want them to elect someone who's more moderate, someone who leans more in the middle and who, for example, supported the Trump impeachment or, you know, and we look at that at the governor's level and at the House level. And, you know, it's it's an interesting debate because you never want to root for a radical extremist. But to some extent, it's important that Democrats are, you know, win and we hold our seats in the House, we hold the Senate um, and we expand in the Senate. Where, where, Where do you come out on that, Brett? I, I really don't have a good, I really don't. Have, there's no right answer. I really don't have a good answer. When I was watching the results come in, I was sort of taking everything as like, oh, it's a win win either way. Like, you know, I don't want these extremists to even have a shot at power. But if it makes the Democrats chances that much more. And if you saw like, you know, the Cook political report and things like that, whenever one of these Trump extremist candidates won, it immediately shifted to a lean Democrat uh, district or, or state or whatever the race was. And so that's important. We want to win seats. Then again, you know, we saw what happens when you play with fire in 2016 and everybody assumed that Donald Trump was a complete and total joke. And guess what? He won. 
and he destroyed the country. So, you know, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of like kind of playing with fire and, and getting involved in it. Like, I, I, and I know, you know, there, a lot of people are mad right now about the, the D triple C getting involved in the, the race with uh, Meyer who uh, lost, who was the more moderate, uh, who voted for impeachment and lost to a, a MAGA Trump endorsed candidate. But the fact is, uh, no matter what they did, I mean, these are the people who these Republican primary voters want to vote for. They want extremists. And Arizona especially has become a hotbed of this right wing extremism. So, of course, they're going to pick these candidates. And all these people were favored to win. Like none of them were very surprising whatsoever. And so when you see like Carrie Lake, you know, coming from by, first off, her whole saga was just the most embarrassing thing, you know, claiming voter fraud when she was down and saying that the election was fraudulent and it was being stolen from her. And then she starts hyping up, oh, there's a ballot dropper. She spelt it ballet drop uh, on Twitter. A new um, ballot drop a ballot is coming, coming, a new coming ballot drop. <laughs> I, I mean, these are the same people who were, uh, you know, look at these votes that were massive. Remember Trump, massive dumps, massive overnight dumps, massive dumps. Uh, these are the same people who were saying that that was, you know, a sign of illegal activity happening elections. And suddenly the massive dumps are now uh, good when they're dumped on carriage. Like, OK, um, anyway, all of a sudden they accept or reject the results based on who was winning the elections. And guess what? It's not just the extremists like Carrie Lake. It's people like Ronna McDaniel who buy into all this. And during the election, when Carrie Lake was down in the polls, you have Ronna McDaniel tweeting out that people in the certain counties in Arizona should resign because they're mishandling the elections. I mean, they are running this insurrectionist policy as their like official Republican Party policy. And, you know, a lot of people talking about the Trump endorsements, you know, did, what Trump's strategy is, if you haven't realized it yet, is he waits until the polls are obvious and then he picks the candidate who is the prohibitive favorite in the races. And when he does not know who is going to win the race? He does what he did in Missouri, which is he goes, I'm just going to pick Eric. And he hedges his bets so that whoever wins, he could say, look, I got it right. It was Eric. Because in that race, there were two Eric's running, Eric Greitens and uh, Eric Schmidt, I believe, was the other person. And Eric Greitens, though, who was the real MAGA favorite there, who Kimberly Guilfoyle actually works on his campaign, who Don Jr. went to bat for, he actually lost, Got actually, in fact, got absolutely blown Trounced. out, trounced, just absolutely destroyed. Um, so if anything, I think Trump's endorsements actually have very little to do with these candidates. That's not to say he doesn't have an impact because I believe like the, you know, when you cut off the head of the Hydra, you know, you get this Trumpist movement that exists and percolates and that that has power and to these voters. So it's more the Trumpism seems to be alive and well. However, the actual influence of Donald Trump himself as an individual to me is very much waning. I don't think people care all that much about it. But, you know, I think normal middle of the road voters, the people who we got to reach, especially Democrats were fired up. They're looking at this and they are flat out rejecting the extremism of the right. And that's why we keep saying we need to run on Republican extremism and Republican corruption because it is just so in your face, so obvious. And I know I've been rambling for a bit, then, but I would be remiss if I didn't speak about the 538 uh, article, the analysis that they gave uh, just about a week and a half ago about the Kansas vote to show you how wrong that the polls got this one. 
ready for this. They said on 538, this vote will be an early bellwether for how Americans are thinking about abortion in the lead up to the midterms. According to the first publicly released poll of the campaign conducted by coefficient and shared exclusively with 538, 47% of primary voters say that they plan to vote for the amendment to overturn abortion, the constitutional right to abortion in Kansas, while 43% say they plan to vote against it. So not even close. They said that the yes votes would have it by, you know, uh, four points and the no votes ended up blowing it out. And then the analysis goes on to say this, which is something that pollsters are completely missing from the picture. One quirk is that the proposed amendment is on the primary ballot, not the general election, which means voter turnout will almost certainly be lower. Lower would benefit the amendment's supporters. Now, they could not have been more wrong with that analysis. The turnout, according to the Secretary of State of Kansas, was actually near the 2008 Obama presidential election. The 2008 Obama presidential general election. That's how fired up these voters are. And that's why what we need to do is we need to put abortion and put it on the ballot in every single state. Have people show up this November knowing that that's the case and make sure that the message is known that if you vote for Democrats, we get two more Democrats in there. Guess what? We are going to override the filibuster. We are going to codify row protections. Make this the most important issue. Absolutely. And make it an issue, whether it's actually on the ballot. Or make sure people know that that is what you're voting for. You're either voting for a pro-choice, pro-reproductive rights Democrat. Pro-freedom. Pro-freedom. Or you're voting for a fascist, anti-freedom, a Republican who wants to treat women like second-class citizens, period. It's, it's really that simple. And you talk about Arizona, Brett, which has these pockets of extremism. Pockets may be generous, but... Arizona and I've been to Arizona, you know, a, a lot lately. And I've spoken to people, former Republicans who are now independents, people who still identify as Republicans, though, who will say, you know, the the Kerry Lakes of the world and the Kelly Wards of the world. I mean, these are some real extremist, radical people. I mean, just for we our- got to mention Blake Masters, too, because he's one of the most radical. I mean, he's like a complete. MAGA psycho. He bl- he blames all gun violence on this is his words, quote, black people like he's just a flat out racist, insurrectionist, garbage human being who's facing off against Senator Mark Kelly. That's such an important race. I mean, the Mark Fincham race, secretary of state, the guy is an election denier, QAnon supporter, member of the Oath Keepers, January 6th insurrectionist. He won the secretary of state primary. He is running to control the elections in Arizona. He's an actual insurrectionist, an actual domestic terrorist. I mean, let's just say it. And he looks like he's going to be facing off against uh, Adrian Fontes, who many of you uh, probably know from the Midas Touch videos, and we've had him on this show. And that's going to be such an important race. Be a very, very important race. But most of Arizona, very moderate when you really break it down, you know, want to go about you know, just going about their life. They don't like any of this extremism crap. And, you know, that's where I think Democrats need to position themselves as, look, we're going to fight for the people. We're going to fight for veterans. We're going to fight for your job. We're going to fight for your health care. We're going to fight for Social Security. You know, we're going to make sure that the government works for you and make sure the government doesn't work against you. And at the same time, You know, Brett, you see Rand Paul and a bunch of Republicans who talked about the PACT Act, even though fortunately it passed after 
John Stewart and Betts basically were able to shame Republicans into finally changing their vote against giving health care to veterans exposed to toxic substances to actually finally supporting that bill. But like Rand Paul and a bunch of the Republicans took the floor and they were basically saying, why should we in any way trust what the veterans say about their sickness? You know, hypertension, asthma, these are just diseases that Americans have. Like we're supposed to believe these veterans that they actually have these diseases just because they're next to toxic pits. Yes. Yes, you are. You're supposed to believe the veterans. Yes. The veterans and the veterans doctors are not lying. That's yes. Rand Paul, we trust our veterans and, and Brett, even arguing, even their overall arch overarching argument when it came to this bill, that they want the that they claimed, oh, oh, we want it to be discretionary and not mandatory funding, even though the prior version of the bill also had it mandatory that they all voted for. But then a bunch of Republicans like Ron Johnson from Wisconsin came out and they talked about what's bad about discretionary and mandatory versus mandatory spending. And they and Ron Johnson gave examples of mandatory spending that he thought were really bad and that needs to be changed. Why don't you play the clip of Ron Johnson talking about mandatory spending problems? Play the clip. Yes, and you know, defense spending has always been discretionary. No VA spending is discretionary. What's mandatory are things like Social Security and Medicare. If, if you qualify for the entitlement, you just get it no matter what the cost. And our problem in this country is that more than 70% of our federal budget, of our federal spending, is all mandatory spending. It's on automatic pilot. It, it never, you just don't do proper oversight. You don't get in there and fix the programs going bankrupt. It's just an automatic pilot. What we ought to be doing is we ought to turn everything into discretionary spending so it's all evaluated so that we, we can fix problems or fix programs that are broken that are going to be going bankrupt. But no. Because, again, as long as things are on automatic pilot, we just continue to pile up debt. It's mortgage our kids' future. It's this massive debt burden. So there you have Ron Johnson talking about basically how he wants to take your Medicare benefits, your social security benefits, which you earned. And he wants to basically make those at his own discretion and cut them rather than give you guaranteed health care and the guaranteed social security that you paid for. That's what they want to do. They just can't help themselves with the social security, Medicare thing. Like they're just admitting it every, like every week now, like somebody comes out in the Republican party and says, yeah, we want to cut. We want to get rid of social security. We want to get rid of Medicare. And why making, if they were to make, if they got their wish and had this be discretionary spending, then what they could have done is, well, first they would have had to force the veterans basically to come back every single year and beg for the funding to be renewed rather than Republicans playing this game over and over or redirecting that discretionary money somewhere else. So it was them who is playing games and you know how you know because the bill did not change one fucking iota from the original bill the bill did not change in the vote that the republicans voted on on tuesday the bill did not change from the vote that they put up their whole tantrum with last week and guess what 11 gop senators still voted no against it those senators were crapo i'm not mad it's not a nickname i'm giving to the guy that's actually his name lankford lee loomis paul reesh romney was a surprising one to me shelby tillis toomey and tuberville all voted no against giving veterans health care it should not be this difficult to do the bare minimum 
for our vets. And this is what we're dealing with. It's it's the lies. It's the gaslighting. It's the doing the bare minimum, making it so difficult to do the bare minimum. And then you have people like Ted Cruz after the fact, taking a victory lap that he voted for the same bill that he blocked previously, saying, I am proud to support the PACT Act and our nation's veterans. Like, fuck you, Ted. Shut the fuck up. I mean, how disgraceful, how stupid do you think our veterans are? Enough of the gaslighting. This bill showed that there is, listen, there is objective reality, okay? Then there's alternative reality. We need to get back to living in actual reality and making sure that voters understand actual reality because Republicans are trying to gaslight us into fascism, into taking away all of our rights, and we can't stand for it. Let's bring in our guest, Stephanie Winston Walkoff. Excited to speak with Stephanie about all that's been going on in her life, what's been going on with some of the investigations into the presidential inaugural committee, her take on some of the Melania news lately, and generally just to chat with Stephanie Winston Walkoff. Let's bring in our interview with Stephanie Winston Walkoff. Welcome back to the Midas Touch podcast. We are joined by Stephanie Winston Walkoff, author of Melania and Me former senior advisor to Melania Trump, but got out of there in the right time. One of the uh, single most important whistleblowers at that time in the White House and one of the single most important guests we've had on Midas Touch of all time. Stephanie Winston Walkoff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so happy to be back. Well, it's great to have you on the show. You know, this is the special Jordy wedding edition. I don't know if you knew that, Stephanie Winston Walkoff. Jordy's getting married. Dun, dun, no! That's oh why. Jo- yeah, that's why Jordy is not Jordy here. But you are the guest on the wedding edition. And, and let me clarify: it's not like getting married right now while we're doing the show. We're we're not doing the podcast in lieu of going to his wedding. But Jordy is prepping for his wedding, which is this weekend. We are because flying out. So excited! I mean, we're so excited for him. I mean, this is congratulations, guys! It's awesome. Yeah, oh if you've God. watched the pod and you have, Stephanie, Jordy needs lots of prep. So he's prepping now. He's going over <laughs> his scripts. So that's what he's doing. Kudos, <laughs> preps, kudos. So I want to talk about some updates. You know, um, what can you tell us? What's been going on with the pick? What's what's the status of some of those investigations? I know that you can share a ton and some of them are still being investigated. But the presidential inaugural committee, um, what's what's the latest and what's the latest of of what you know what's going on there? I have to say over the last, um, I would say the last six months, you know, the inauguration's gotten a little quieter. There hasn't been that much conversation about it. It wasn't, it hasn't been in the media that much. Um, but as we all know, things are happening behind the scenes. And um, I think just knowing that Tom Barrack's, you know, trial is coming up at the end of September is something that should be on everyone's radar. I think it's really important to understand that not just being the chairman of the presidential inauguration committee, but being Donald Trump's best friend for over 40 years. There's something really powerful and important about that because there was access and knowledge to so much that was happening during the timing of the producing of the presidential inauguration. And that's why I always keep going back to the pit, presidential inauguration committee. I think it's so important that people don't realize or not that they don't know, it's just so much took place there, right? Even more than what's out there in the media. And when you start to really um, understand the different investigations that are going on, some like the Southern District of New York that we all believe was shut down, was it shut down? Yet to be seen, right? There's so much information there. And there are a lot of players that were originally being, you know, questioned in other cases and other investigations, 
So, I mean, look, this is, this is all new to everyone. And Stephanie, this is why we, we love having you on the show. In addition to the friendship that we've all built, which is why I like to just chat with you about life in, in general, but people are so focused right now and rightfully so on what took place on January 6th, what took place with the fake electors. But we always want to remind our viewers and listeners about all this other uh, criminal activity that was taking place literally right from the outset. And so when we talk about the pick, when we talk about the presidential inaugural committee, the word inaugural, literally the very first thing that Trump does, even before he's president, <laughs> yeah, pre-inaugural, <laughs> is, that, is that he starts figuring out, hey, how can I bring in all this foreign money, all this other dark money? How can I start funneling money to my Trump properties. Let's get this kicked off right away. And Tom Barrick, the person who you mentioned who's going on criminal trial this fall, right before the midterms as well, was a well-known private equity guy with connections to various uh, foreign sovereign funds um, and worked with foreign governments also early on to bring money to Trump um, and Tom Barrick, you know, who's very close to Trump, one of Trump's best friends, he's going on criminal trial for his conduct. Can you tell us a little more about the conduct he's going on trial for what you knew about Tom Barrick? I just wanted to give our listeners and viewers that context though. Well, I have to say when I first heard of Tom Barrick, when I was first introduced to Tom, and I, I always say he was like the best kept secret in Hollywood because I would think that working on Vogue for you know over a decade at Lincoln Center as a fashion director, that I would have met Tom Barrick in my in my circles. Um, and the fact that he, you know, bailed out Andy Leibowitz, like he owned Michael Jackson's Neverland. I mean, there's so many things about Tom that are fascinating, right? And then he's got Colony Capital, which is, you know, his multi-billion dollar company that he's now no longer um the chairman of or the CEO, but I, I just want to step back for one second though and really line up the players a little bit because in order to talk about Tom and the inauguration and what's happening in front of everyone's eyes, let's say Cassidy Hutchinson's um, testimony, the people that were in the White House and the people that were during the planning of the inauguration are the people whose names are now really coming out and people are starting to recognize names that we brought up four years ago. Right, so let's step on Pasentino, for example, the former ethics lawyer at the White House. He was who was representing Cassidy. And Cassidy, had she stayed with him, would have never been testifying. She, he would have been able to keep her mouth closed. And that is the same lawyer who I went to while I was working in the White House, who I disclosed all of the illicit activity that I was witnessing, that I had seen during the inauguration. And I shared everything with him thinking that I was doing the right thing, right? Who else do you go to when you're dealing with the most powerful people in the world? You go to the lawyers in the White House, or at least you would think you would. Trump has so monopolized every um, legal entity, every, you know, he, he's, he's infiltrated so many different areas of our system. And that did happen. And I, again, how long ago, how many years ago, way before he you know, decided to run, I don't know that. But what I do know is sitting in that chair, witnessing the Rick Gateses of the world, the Tom Barracks, the Michael Flynn, I mean, all of these people and many, many more 
who haven't even mentioned yet. I'm waiting for those names to drop. You know, are people that were incentivized in their own ways, they weren't there for the right reasons, but they're continuing to do his bidding for him. And they are, you know, unfortunately, um, it's taking years and years to get this information out because it's very hard to track all these moving parts. But once you start connecting the dots, you see this big reveal happening and the players are the same. Their um, ability to keep people quiet has been very successful, you know, to a certain point, right? There's only so much you can say in the media due to NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and also due to the fact that there are pl the platforms are there, like with you guys, it's amazing. And you've given people the opportunity to speak their minds, speak the truth. And I thank you for that. I, I mean, everyone thanks you for that. Um, but at the same time, it's not enough, right? Like there are so many people that need to come on, that need to talk to you, that need to speak up, but they're afraid. Well, and one of the um, people who, you know, I think has done such a courageous job recently is Jessica Denson. Um, and Jessica's become a Midas contributor. Uh, we've been able to share her story about, uh, you know, her fighting Trump's NDA and and really want to thank you as well for helping make that connection there as well, because, I mean, Jessica's a superstar and the world just needed to hear from her. And you're right, Stephanie, there's so many other superstars out there like that whose voices need to be amplified, you know, particularly right now. You know, the closer we look at someone like Jessica, who wouldn't, doesn't have the access that, you know, didn't have the relationships to be able to get in touch with you guys. Yes, she can direct message and things like that, but people need to start using their relationships to connect people to the right individuals to make things happen. And it, this is about, again, I spend my days just getting to the bottom of, you know, the facts. It's all about the facts and it's about the individuals that can present those facts. Jessica had a journey that needed to be shared with everyone. And I'm seeing more and more, and I've gotten closer to more and more females who have been a part of the Trump administration. And if you look at, you know, the group that has come out and spoken up, they are a group of women who have definitely tried, tried to speak truth to power and have tried to explain it from a, standpoint of, look, I was only trying to do my best, which your best isn't good enough when it comes to Trump. And that's understandable. You got to own your actions and you've got to admit the fact that, yes, he was not someone that we all should have worked for. But at the same time, we did. And, and I, I didn't personally work for him. I worked for Melania, but that's, again, I was there. I, I consider myself one of those people. And you have to own it. And you've got to say, look, I did this for whatever those reasons may be, to make a better world, to create platforms and initiatives and whatever it may be. And it's the same thing with someone like Cassidy, right? Who, you know, all of a sudden it's come out that Cassidy was working outside of the White House, um, you know, after, after the administration. Well, you know what? She may have made some really stupid mistakes, but they were not illegal. She is a young girl who was making a living for whatever those reasons were. People have to understand there's a difference between what we all do every day. We, we learn from our mistakes, but we're not hurting people. We're not illicitly, you know, trying to grift off of everybody else. And we're not working with international, you know, enemies of, of, of our country that are infiltrating every area of our democracy to take it over into what Donald Trump wants it to be. You know, when I think about that image of Cassidy Hutchinson going to Mark Meadows and saying, do something, you know, and him just looking at his cell phone, 
cowardly. We've seen him in that image when the media confronted him recently when he was walking around D.C., just looking at his cell phone like a little coward as <laughs> Rome burned. Just going back to Tom Barrack for a second, just wanted to everyone know what he's being uh, charged with. The indictment was for secretly advancing the interest of the United Arab Emirates, as well as a number of counts of obstruction. So in essence, helping foreign governments basically selling out the United States to foreign governments, which we literally saw the moment Donald Trump got into office and those C-SPAN cameras were at the Trump Towers and you'd literally see all of the foreign dignitaries and princes and sheikhs and everybody walk in, you know, literally with like bags that look like they could like no joke. They look like they could have been bags filled with money, you know, but literally planning and plotting how they were going to sell off America starting from day one. You mentioned Melania. I do want to talk about Melania because she has been in the news lately in connection with January 6th. You see that statement that she put out um, where I mean, it looked like Donald Trump wrote it, but at this point, their minds probably have melded Even so much. Even the signature and- looked like a Donald Trump signature. Yeah. I'm just saying. That, sign- no, no, that signature was, that's her signature. That's I mean, her I sig- that she just, she just copies Donald's signature. That's why. You know what? They, when she was actually um, picking up gifts for the White House as to, you know, gifts she wanted to get out, um, she, you know, I had to get her signature from her. And when I saw it the first time, I was like, wow. And again, <laughs> that they are two peas in a pod. Do not think that Donald is writing her tweets for her. I mean, Melania is selling NFTs and grifting off the American people the same way that Donald Trump is just in a different you know, platform. She's using something that doesn't have to appear anywhere. She doesn't have to say anything. And when she does say something, unfortunately it's the detriment of what we already know about her, right? right? The more she speaks up, the more she's actually, um, you know, revealing things that I, I, I'm even shocked at to a certain point. And it amazes me that artists and and individuals that are creative and understand the importance of putting something out into the world forever, like an NFT and having, you know, using the armed forces as um, her um, extension to be able to express herself through this artwork and sell it, whatever it may be, so someone can have a piece of history. The reality of all that is that they've always used the military as a touch point. And I know that because I remember during the planning of the presumption inauguration, nobody would perform at the inauguration. So who did we count on? The Joint Task Force, the Army, the Navy, all of the military. And it was the same thing we went into the White House for the first governor's dinner, was there was no one who would perform. So who did we go to the same military group that performed at the Lincoln Memorial during the, during the inauguration? So the military should be respected in such a way as we know they do not respect the military, they do not respect any sort of enforcement or fellow enforcement, or for that matter, anyone that's trying to protect us, but they, to use them in a way, and again, so many of them don't, I don't know if they don't realize it. What do you think? I mean, do they not see it? Do they not know it? Do they, what is it? I really would like to know because it, it, it it's, it's concerning and it's also just so unpatriotic as opposed to, um, you know, looking up to them. Those are our heroes. I mean, truly, they saved the lives of everyone at the Capitol that day. You know, Brett and I were talking about it. You know, the symbolism of our country is so powerful. And, you know, the American flag, what it stands for, you know, when the American flag is planted on the hills of Iwo Jima after a battle, you know, and weaponized, though, in the hands of evil um, and used in a predatory way, 
as the Trumps do, as Melania does, as the entire ultra MAGA grip does, you know, does have that ability to manipulate people. I mean, people are Americans are you know hardworking people. They're working. They're not following necessarily all the latest podcasts and all the latest tweets. You know, they come home and they see someone with the flag and they go, oh, you know, that person represents me. They're talking like me. They're saying things about me. And that's the part where, you know, I think the Trump griff, the Trump con machine was able to really, you know, supplant itself, you know, the way it did in the White House. Yes. And again, to the extension of what's going on today is they still have people that have not been held accountable, not just them. Right. So it's not just Donald and Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric and Jared. Yes, it's the immediate family, but there's also their very close friends and allies. Right. I'm not talking about the individuals that were working at the White House because that was their job. They were being paid to do a job. I'm talking about the individuals that came aboard. And that brings me back to Tom. Right. Tom could have. You know, Jared says, oh, he didn't want Tom as a part of the Middle East peace planning process. Tom could have easily had he wanted to, had any position in the White House. And to think that Donald didn't know what was going on, please. Donald knew everything that was going on. I witnessed it, okay? So when I say everything, I'm the things that I was present at, when it had to do with the planning process, when it had to do with talking about individuals and their involvement in whatever the conversation was about, Tom and Donald were, on, you know, best, again, they were, Donald was the big man in the big house and Don, and, and Tom was his right-hand man. Do you, did you know Stephanie Grisham? I did know Stephanie Grisham. I knew Stephanie Grisham um, while I was working in the White House. I was, um, she was in the West Wing. See, that's the thing too. So Stephanie started out in the West Wing um, of the White House before she came over to the East Wing. And I did not have um, a very strong opinion of Stephanie at the time. Um, and um, she really did Melania's bidding for her, uh, as well as, again, Donald's. But I know wholeheartedly what she did with Melania and for Melania. And it was uh, done in such a way where it was, uh, it exposed the untruths of who these people are, but in a way that, I don't even know how to put it into words, guys. Stephanie did the wrong thing. Stephanie made a really big fucking mistake. Excuse me. I don't know if I'm allowed to even curse. No, you can curse. Uh, yeah, please. I'm so sorry. Stephanie made a really big mistake. She um, is someone who I look at and I say, okay, she made her mistake. Like I said to you earlier, we all make mistakes, but own it. Own the fact that you screwed so many people over. Own the fact that you ruined my life. I mean, this woman ruined my life, when she was willing to do the bidding on behalf of Melania and Donald and Tom Barrett and the White House to make it look as if I was someone who was involved in illicit activity. I mean, my life turned into a criminal crime story. I mean, basically, right? I was falsely accused of things. That's not a little sidebar. That's my life. And that's happened to so many people. Right. And I mentioned Stephanie Grisham's name, you know, and the rea- I knew that story because what I wanted to talk about is now Stephanie Grisham has been thrown under the bus by Melania and Stephanie Grisham said, no, I had warned because Stephanie Grisham is trying to get jobs outside of the White House now and she's trying to get back into proper society. And so she's saying, no, I warned Melania. Here are my emails. Here are my text messages. Here are my recordings. That sounds familiar to you, Stephanie. Walcott. Here's the information that I have. And Melania is saying, no, you're a liar. She can't be trusted. 
uh, Stephanie Grisham's a horrible person. And that's coming out in connection with the January 6th committee. So the real message, right, is that it all kind of comes full circle for these liars. Like if you think that at the end of the day, if you're going to, you know, get in the Trump's good graces and then gracefully exit and not call them out, they got something else coming for you. They will always turn on you, and which is why I've always so respected what you did, because you were courageous and just called them out from the outset, from day one, right away. You could have buried your hand in the sand and just, you know, and played ball and, and had that career trajectory. And you're like, no, just fuck that. And exclusive here. OK, so um, after I read the New York Post article where Melania claimed, you know, that Stephanie didn't let her know and she was unaware and all of this, just whatever. At the end, she put in this part that she had put on her Twitter feed about me without using my name, about, you know, people using them to profit or make their, make their names or what, you know, again, it was a direct hit. So the exclusive part of this is that I actually reached out to Stephanie Grisham. Again, imagine the person that did what she did to me, I reached out to her because it's much more important that I reach out to her and try and let the world know now that she's understood the fact that she's got to start speaking the truth. And again, what she speaks the truth about, I can't tell you what's a lie and what's not, but I felt it was the right thing to do because I want Melania to be held accountable. So I wanted people to understand and I put a lot on my Twitter about it and I haven't spoken about it publicly until now um, that we as individuals must work together whatever side of the fence we're on, right? It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, third party, all these things that are going on. We are people at the end of the day. We are a part of this earth. Like we have to work together in order to have some assemblance of decency that we can leave our children and their children and for generations. I can continue again, will I forget and forgive? Never, uh-huh. because she destroyed me in so many ways and my family and everything that I, again, live for which is truth. And, um, but I felt it was important to say, look, it's now time to at least have that conversation um, to open the door to, you know, making sure everybody else knows that Melania truly is someone not to trust. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Grove Collaborative. Hey, did you know that only 9% of plastic actually gets recycled? No matter how much we put in our recycling bin, that's wild. At Grove Collaborative, they believe it's time to ditch single-use plastics for good. Grove carries hundreds of products aimed at replacing single-use plastics across your home and personal care routine. And by 2025, Grove will be 100% plastic-free. Like Grove Collaborative's concentrated cleaners and refillable glass bottles, they're friendlier to the planet and twice as effective as leading natural brands. Switch to sustainable products for every room in your home, from laundry care to hand soaps and more. Grove Co. has you covered with safe formulas and refillable packaging that never compromises on performance. What I love about Grove is you know that everything you get there, everything, it takes the guesswork out of it. Everything you get there is going to be good for you and good for the environment. And I've gotten stuff for my house there. I've gotten stuff for me personally there. I've gotten stuff for my dog there. Everything that I've ever gotten from Grove is top-notch 
quality. So here's what you got to do. Join over 2 million households already shopping sustainably at Grove by going to grove.com slash Midas Touch today to get a free gift worth up to $50 with your first order. You heard that right, 50, five, zero plus. Shipping is fast and it's free. So get started right now. That's grove.com slash Midas Touch. Grove.com slash Midas Touch. And now back to the show. She's given us zero reason to trust her at all throughout these past few years. And most recently, uh, the statement that Ben was had brought up earlier, I want to get back to, which was Melania's statement about what she was doing the day of January 6th. And here was the statement that Melania said. She said, on January 6th, 2021, I was fulfilling my duties as First Lady of the United States of America. And accordingly, I was unaware of what was simultaneously transpiring at the U.S. Capitol building. Stephanie Grisham called bullshit on that, as I think could anybody with a brain cell or two. Um, what, what did you think when you saw that statement from Melania? Let's start there. First, I was not surprised, um, but I, I was actually astonished because I was like, how could you possibly say it? Even if she didn't know, everybody else in the room would have. And of course, Melania knew. Right, Melania, to, to put herself out there like that, it just, like I said earlier, it's just another um, indecent thing for her to do to add to her list of, you know, I would, her unaccomplishments of being first lady and, and someone that people uh, are supposed to uh, look up to. The, the, the reality of all this is that, look, I know, knowing who would possibly be in the White House at that time, I think, you know, again, for me, knowing who Melania might be photographing things with is something that is really important that no one would have the inside um, of that and who the photographer would be, who the lighting person may have been, who's taking care of certain things. And that's information that I'm able to provide. Again, I don't, and that's what I said to you guys earlier. We know that there are things going on behind the scenes. Melania's, um, you know, pretending that she doesn't know. Melania knows everything as well. Melania sits upstairs in that executive presidents. I've sat there. I've watched that rolling, you know, the, mm -hmm. the evolving, never ending, you know, visitors from the West Wing and from elsewhere, the phone calls that should be on a private line that are taking place on different cell phones. I mean, they are all just, um, it's just corrupt. It's horrible. It's indecent. And it's really just, um, you know, it's horrible. And, and then it came out that on that day, she was apparently doing some sort of a uh, photo shoot with the White House carpet or, you know, it's just beyond, beyond parody. <laughs> beyond parody. And, and here's the thing too. It's like people say, oh, what do you think about her decoration? And, you know, how she decorate. The fact that Melania Trump has left her stamp and mark in the White House, the people's home, especially to have commented on actually doing it on a day that we almost lost the White House in our democracy is just putting, you know, alcohol on a huge open wound. It's disgusting. And, you know, the new strategy that's being reported by the press for Donald Trump is they're saying, you know, Donald Trump and his lawyers are rightfully scared of criminal charges from the Department of Justice. So what's their strategy? It's to try to find a fall guy or fall guys for his crimes on January 6th, whether it be John Eastman or Rudy Giuliani or any other of these wackos. Now, you are a let's call it a, a a fall guy yourself of who Donald Trump and Melania tried to put the blame on you for crimes. So what do you make of this? Doj. I mean, Bill Barr 
sent me, you know, cease and desist in a lawsuit. I mean, these people do not care to use our systems against us. And that's what's um, very hard for me to watch. Again, I know we have to wait for justice. It's slow because it's got to be ironclad. But they abused every possible avenue to hurt everyone they can and continue to do so. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, people forgot that, Stephanie. Why don't you highlight that before Brett asks, just so people remember that the DOJ actually sued you. They filed the lawsuit against you. Can you just remind people about the lawsuit that how they weaponized the DOJ and actually like sued you? And that's not the only lawsuit that, again, has has been publicly known. And and, and they're not the only ones that try to create a cease and desist or a lawsuit. I haven't gotten into that yet. That's for another day. But yes, they, under Bill Barr, under the Department of Justice, um, when Melania and me was announced it was coming out, they sued me in order to stop it from actually being published. And they couldn't stop that. And then they um, went after me for all of my profits of the book which doesn't surprise me, but uh, the lawsuit was, I mean, again, the expense, the time and the energy to be sued by the Department of Justice was the most, I don't know, was that was scarier or actually, no, I think the Southern District of New York in a grand jury subpoena after the Trumps made me out to be this false criminal may have been a little scarier. I think I was under, I was in a rhythm by this point. I had already had a few subpoenas and a few, you know, um, other legal documents, but the Department of Justice was scary. And the fact that they abused it to such a point is just um, it, nothing, like I said earlier, nothing surprises me. And they're willing to come after you until they silence you. Unfortunately for them, I'm not silenced at all. And the facts and the truth I have behind me. See, they couldn't sue me for defamation because I did. I, the book was to Melania. I dedicated it to Melania. And the reason was for that was everything I wrote about, she knows about. And she knows that I have the documentation, the communication to back it up. Yeah. And so you must be watching, you must have watched the January 6th hearings and seen Bill Barr up there trying to act like he was some hero of democracy. You must have been like, screw this guy. Again, it's people like that that cannot just go and whitewash their past, right? Those people took the, the system to a whole new level. Um, and the injustice that we as you know citizens have had to you know, deal with is, um, it's unacceptable. So people like Bill Barr, again, I have no respect for someone like that. People like Cassidy Hutchinson, I do. Uh, Same here. I want to go to Ivana Trump. I mean, it's such a weird, sad, creepy, just a, a lot of just bizarre elements to it. I mean, we've seen a lot of horrific things that the Trump family has apparently done around the death of Ivana from using her death to move their deposition with Letitia James to burying her on the back lot of a golf course, allegedly for tax purposes. But there's something else that I saw you mentioned that I had not seen reported anywhere. And that is that the kids have been encouraging people, and you could correct me if I'm wrong here, encouraging people to donate to this charity called Big Dog Ranch Rescue. And that may have some other sort of corrupt implications there. What do you see the Trump family doing? How are they using this to grift off the death of Ivana? I can't say for sure whether they're, you know, grifting off the death of Ivana. But I can say they're continuing to grip using um, a, a, a love of hers, which are dogs. Um, I, I just don't, 
You know what I'm saying? I want to be really careful. Yeah, this is a this is your opinion. This is my not- yeah. So my opinion is first of all, condolences to their family, extended family. Regardless, it's still a hard. I mean, to lose someone is devastating. To watch them lose their mother. Um, you know, of course, I was looking forward to the Fridays uh, deposition by Letitia James. Right, I, I knew that Donald Ivanka and Don Jr. were being deposed the next day. So the fact that Ivana died on Thursday, their deposition was 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 postponed. And there, and, it, and it, again, until yesterday, I had heard that it, there hadn't been a new date. It's supposed to be sometime this month. We'll see. But in watching what these children. Um, and their and and their husbands and their wives do with foundations and charities has been the cornerstone of a grift of, for the Trump family. They've each utilized different charitable um, events and foundations to raise money. And at some point within that um, movement and flow of from one corporation to the other, money has been spent at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and money has been, was spent at the Trump Hotel and money is spent at, at, at Bedminster. There is always a way for them to profit. And here, the foundation that for, for the dog rescue was one that Laura Trump had already funneled in over $2 million, um, you know, by raising, by, by working with them. This is, the, her, this is one of her charities. So for me, when I read that, I found it odd that there were no others, right? It was only this one that happened to be under you know, um, scrutiny for, for a little while. Again, they do so much daily that you can't keep up. So it's like, you just want to turn the page right. and keep going. Right. But we have to take, take a second and step back and say, wait a second, what charity? And when I was reading, I was like, what charity is that? And wait, and then to the fact that, you know, I thought maybe she's all, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's um, Ivana, her, her, the fact that, that her children, and maybe it was her wishes to be buried there like that. Um, I just find it disheartening. And I also think that um, they've um, continued to use everyone. And it looks as if, you know, this was another opportunity, death of their mother to be able to, um, you know, find a way to raise money for whatever may benefit them. It's definitely bizarre. The whole thing. I mean, at, at the very least, it's just like, who are these? It, you know, it's like the Adams family makes the Trumps look like, uh, I mean, it's, it's absurd. I mean, yes. I want to ask you, if you're a lawyer, how is it possible that there, we heard about Ivana's passing. We heard that at, at first that it was, um, you know, um, internal bruising to the torso. Um, and then we heard there was, there was being investigated. And then like five hours later, it was closed. Closed, shut down, right? If the case was, it was ruled an accident. Don't they investigate those type of, and again, I'm not doing any conspiratorial conversation with you. I'm just saying out of respect to Ivana, like don't you, isn't there usually time to make sure that nothing else happened or it was just a quick open and shut case? It's interesting that you say that because- you know, I run a forensic pathology institute where we provide second free autopsies to families who lose loved ones in situations involving uh, officer involved shootings and deaths like that. So that that it gives the family in that period of time 
the comfort to know a cause of death. And so I'm very familiar with second autopsies in a very unique way based on the organization that I, I'm, I'm running. And I've never heard of a autopsy that's done in five hours ever. I've never heard of that before. Um, usually the initial autopsy from the municipality will take days, you know, especially where there's strange circumstances, you know, where it's not like an elderly individual who, who dies of natural causes, you know, in a situation like this, usually it would take at the very least a week, a few weeks, you know, sometimes many weeks before you get the causes and then you got to send blood results to labs and you got to get all this testing. And so it doesn't just end with the initial autopsy. You're waiting for testing results and, and lab results and, and all of that information. And then usually if there was also suspicious circumstances or just strange circumstances, a family may want to avail themselves to have their own forensic pathologist come in and, you know, and also try to, and they'd pay for that service to also get answers as well, because you'd very rarely be fully trusting of a very crowded county coroner's office that's doing, you know, a hundred autopsies in, you know, in a, a day and, you know, and the county coroners are already overloaded with all of the fentanyl overdoses that are taking place. So, I've never heard of that before, Stephanie, and it's strange, you know, it's odd. It's odd that it happened so, you know, that the autopsy happened so quick. I'm with you. I don't want to veer down a path into conspiratorial land, but suffice to say that as someone who who runs a forensic pathology institute, I've never seen that happen. Oh, and then again, in the following weekend to have this, you know, tournament on the Bedminster golf course with Liv and, you know, the the individuals that, um, you know, are part of, you know, Tom Barrack's indictment. Um, it's really fascinating how Trump's world intersects in every area. And again, not being conspiratorial, but at the same time, there has to be some accountability somewhere at some point, because as we see what's happening, you know, yesterday, like all of the races that are happening, like this, again, like it's not just Donald and his closest friends. He is, impenetrating and 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 affecting just the leadership in every category you know top down bottom up and it is frightening and for those reasons you know to allow him to get away you know he there are other people that could be held accountable for holding the tournament or for you know i, I would think right it's not just him and i know there's a bigger picture here but it, we have to stop the um you know and hold someone somewhere accountable for each of these different criminal activities that are going on because it's turned into just a washing machine. It has. It's, it's turned into a washing machine of crime and criminality and lawlessness and really the exact antithesis of what America really is. But we appreciate you coming on, Stephanie Winston Walkup, because you are one of those people who use the platform that you have to call out the misconduct that was taking place. And you've continued to call it out, you know, um, when it's very frightening sometimes to have to face and confront what you know you do each and every day um but we appreciate your courage we appreciate you coming on the podcast and we do hope you'll come back on soon thank you guys so much you keep doing what you're doing
Thank you so much. Go Jordy. You're doing the best thing, marriage. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back after these marriage messages. Welcome back to the Midas Touch podcast. Great having Stephanie Winston Walkoff on the show. And thank you all for joining us on the Midas Touch podcast. As Brett and I start preparing for Jordy's wedding, we want to both say to Jordy and his wife, Alexis, we want to say we love you both. We wish you all soon to be wife, Ben, soon to be wife. We wish you all the best. Well, this podcast lasts into perpetuity. So by the time you're probably listening to this podcast after they will have been married. So congratulations, Jordy and Alexis. Thank you to all the Midas Mighty for making Jordy your favorite Midas Touch brother. (laughs) And uh, we will see you next time on the Midas Touch podcast. And guys, stay fired up. Let's harness this energy going into the midterms. We got less than 97, 96 or so days until we get to change the trajectory of this country and keep out these fascist Republicans. We're going to need all of you to get to work, put in the work, donate, text message, phone bank, knock on doors, volunteer, do whatever you can. Remember, we can win. We can absolutely win these elections, but you have to step up and you have to vote and you have to make sure that everyone you know votes. On that note, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Midas Touch Podcast. Thank you to our sponsor, Grove Collaborative. Remember to get your free up to $50 gift. I can't, I still can't believe up to $50 gift at grove.com slash Midas Touch. Check out new Midas Touch merch at store.midastouch.com and have an amazing weekend. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. <laughs> <laughs>